what's the next step? It's not revolution because that's bloody. It's not uh, reformation because that normally ends up in a dictatorship. It's renewal, renewal of faith, renewal of faith in the Constitution. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, today we have on the program uh, someone who I I hope he's not uh, embarrassed to be referred to as a kindred spirit. Uh, the fans of the show know that I have an English literature background, and so I, I delight in book in works of literature. And the author we have on the show, Richard Lyons, is an author of literature. He's a poet, uh, and he's written some also some very interesting and beautiful books, beautiful to read. And we're going to talk about them because uh, Richard is is not only uh, a, an author of beautiful uh, uh, nonfiction. Uh, but he is has his finger squarely on the pulse of some of the things that we talk about a lot on the show, particularly democracy. And one of the books we're going to be talking about is called The DNA of Democracy. Also another one called Shadow of the Acropolis, both brilliant books, and I'm looking forward to discussing them with him. Welcome to the show today, Richard. Well, thank you, Leighton. That's, a, that's as nice an introduction as I ever got. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully it'll get better because uh, this, this program starts off with something called, uh, we have framing aphorisms. Uh, and so uh, these have been chosen in your honor. So hopefully these these give you some uh, some pleasure and will launch us into a, I know what, what I know will be a fascinating conversation. The first one is uh, from someone that I know you're familiar with, William Shakespeare. And yeah. uh, one of his lesser known plays is King John. You know why I'm, why I'm, Quoting from this, <laughs> yes, I think so. Uh, and King John, uh, it was Shakespeare uh, as King John wrote this: "How oft the sight of means to do ill deeds makes deeds ill done," and uh, that has a lot of application in modern politics. Uh, secondly, also someone who uh, is in uh, one of your books, King uh, Henry the Eighth of England, who was quoted as saying, two beheadings out of six wives is too many." And finally, uh, another hero of your book, uh, George Washington, who wrote that liberty, when it begins to take root, is a plant of rapid growth. All right. So I want to talk firstly about the DNA of democracy. And uh, this seems, now now that I know a little bit more about you, this seems like almost an un- unlikely foray for you, uh, because it's a work of very uh, interesting and um, I would say uh, I would say accurate history. But yes. um, it, it's all it's all in the context of describing the roots of democracy and why they're important and why they need to be maintained and also uh, how they're imperiled. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you got the idea for the DNA of democracy? Well, it, it, like a lot of people in Western democracies, Leighton, a number of years back, perhaps six to eight years ago, um, I had plans to do other things like screenplays and things like that and another book of poetry. And, uh, but I noticed something was, was going very wrong in the manner of our governance, uh, where, whereby during Obama's presidency, over 20,000 rules were passed by federal agencies 
by persons appointed within federal agencies to lifetime uh, positions. We're making 20,000 rules with the effects of law, while at the same time, the legislature, the original fountain of authority, only passed 400 laws, which means that governance is being taken away from our representatives and, and put in agencies uh, and made by appointees. So that along with many other things, how were the Clintons getting away with all that they got away with was remarkable to me. Um, so I, I had to make a study. Well, what what is right with our country and what has gone wrong? To fashion what was right about our country, I had to study all of the previous successful democracies in history, uh, which would be Athens and its constitution, Rome and its constitutional republic, Britain and its common law. So I went back and I found that all democracies of the kind, all governance of the kind, actually sprang out of rebellions against extreme tyranny. Yes, so that's something. It, no, it's, <laughs> it's almost a so, promising sign for the future, isn't it, Richard? But there's also symbols in this. Things are, things are who was it, Leighton, who said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes very right. well. Right? Yes. I think it was yes. Mark Twain. Yeah. Um, at any rate, so there was a fellow, now see if this doesn't sound familiar. There was a tyrant in Athens called Isagoras. He came into power by means of a mercenary Spartan army. And he decided that half the population of Athens was cursed, rather like abhorrent. This is in and shadow of the, of the Acropolis, right? This, it is. Yes, it, yeah. no, it's in, no, it's in DNA of democracy. DNA of democracy, yeah. Under Greece. Right. Um, and so he said half the population is cursed, and therefore I can assume its wealth. All of its property and wealth I can distribute to my friends and my family and my mercenary army. And you people are free to go. You're exiled from Athens. So given that extreme tyranny, the Athenian citizens, subject to being cursed, <laughs> decided they would take back their own government. And they climbed the Acropolis and, and defeated a never defeated previously Spartan army, threw Isagoras out and created the Athenian uh, constitution. So that is one example of how a democracy started from extreme tyranny. And I found the same happened again in Rome under uh, King Tarquin, and then Brutus responded to the extreme tyranny of Tarquin by creating a revolution in Roman governance, where right. they threw out their king, installed a constitution, created a dual council uh, uh, manner of separating the executive, and then created the 12 tables of law, which are an ancestor of our common, both the British right. and the American. Right. And all the Western democracies. Right. So, so that was pivotal. And I have that in the DNA of democracy. And where right. we go next is to King John. King John and King Henry King, VIII. Yes, of course. Why, Leighton, why has there never been a King John II? Oh. <laughs> because <laughs> thank, this guy was, Thank God. Thank God he there was hasn't so been. Bad. He yeah. was so bad. Uh, but he gave us, but, it, but it gave us the Magna Carta, didn't it? Well, that's it. So yeah. Isagoras, by by the rebellion against him, actually gave us the Athenian constitution. The Tarquins gave us the 12 tables and the Roman constitution. King John gave us the Magna Carta. And then uh, came uh, Henry VIII. So Henry VIII 
decided to bring the whole spiritual faith of his people into himself. Right. And anoint himself and claim the divine right of a king. Now, as we all know, in Europe, that was something unique about Europe. And I think uh, responsible for a lot of its growth was that the civil uh, seat of power and the spiritual seat of power were separated. Church and king vied with one another as to who was more powerful. Therefore, the cathedrals were built in one area of town and the palaces in another. Right. Right. And they juxtaposed each other and they were competitors. I think that helped Europe greatly. And it's uh, anyway, he took upon himself uh, the the faith of the people. And, and so became a monolithic monarch in the sense that he was also the head of the church and the civil government. And so, you know, and he butchered a lot of, a lot of people along the way. Uh, heroes to myself and some like Thomas More, mm-hmm. uh, patron saint of all lawyers. Yeah, and he and Thomas More stated he said Henry and they these two were friends. Mm-hmm. They were great friends previous to Henry wanting to cast aside Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. Catherine of uh, Aragon. Anyway, her name was Catherine. Mm-hmm. They were great friends previous to that, and. Um, so when uh, Thomas said, Henry, you don't know what you're letting loose. You're going to have a country that will savage itself for two centuries over this question of whether you're divine or God's divine. Right. Who, who is the spiritual law? And Henry, Henry did it to assume all the wealth of the monasteries, every church he wanted to take, and then to distribute that wealth to his friends and family. Mm-hmm. And that he did. And so out of that, out of that divine right of kings, we have to go a couple of generations down. But that uh, brought us to Charles I and his prerogatives and, and how he determined he could rule without parliament and he was the head of the church and no one could uh, have a say in the rule of their own government. Mm-hmm. And so he was beheaded for that and that ended up in the, um, in the um, dedication of right or the declaration of right. Glorious revolution. So that was another tyranny that became another foundation of the DNA of democracy. I'm seeing a pattern here, Richard. And then, of course, we get to the yeah. United States. Well, that right. was what was remarkable with the research. Was right. It was the same thing over and over again, that there was such a, a, a vengeful, wrathful uh, tyranny uh, where uh, people were said to be other and lesser and not of the same level as the aristocracy and, and the mm-hmm. monarchy. And so, yeah, so it happened time and time and again through the classical era and and uh, up to the era of revolutions when in America, uh, the same thing occurred, but it was with George III. After the French and Indian War, that was seven years long and it was throughout the continent of America. It was across the globe, actually. Uh, but it was fought in Europe, it was fought in America and at great cost to Britain so that they found themselves in massive debt uh, so the crown wanted to recoup some of that debt from the colonists who were very prosperous because they governed themselves, in fact, for 150 years. And they were very productive on their farms and in their towns and in their you mean You mean smaller government can sometimes lead to individual prosperity and freedom? <laughs> and creativity and engineering and architecture, <laughs> and, you know, all these wonderful things. 
Um, and so, yeah, so that was happening in America. And, and he decided to put an army in America, custom agents to, to collect taxes. He created something like the Doomsday Book of William I that he, he wanted to know what everybody owned. He wanted to know what everybody made. And he wanted to tax simple items like, like paper and tea, which were everyday items that affected everybody. So right. everybody went all the so the the pattern was clear. He he was using the wealth of the people to oppress the people through taxation. He took in the taxes and then paid the army and then paid the customs officials to monitor activity in the colonies and to take as much wealth as they could without creating. Things like the, you know, the tea, uh, the Tea Party Rebellion, and, and right, that sort of thing. right. Yeah. One of the thesis of the book is that there is this code, there is this pattern yeah. throughout history of of a periods of tyranny followed by rebellion, and then a renovation, a rebirth. In the case of England, you know, the the Great Charter, the Magna Carta, and you yeah. and 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 how that sort of became the foundation for the rule of law. And individual rights, individual property rights, and then that's carried forward and expressed probably most beautifully in the American Constitution. So, yes. said all that, here's here's the million dollar question. Yeah. Well, it's two parter. Number one, uh, do you see the footprints, the DNA of tyranny, going on right now in in the West, uh, in places like the United States and Canada, and and if so. Uh, can we hope for and look forward to uh, a, a renaissance of, of liberty, of individual freedom and prosperity going forward? Is that is that built within your, your DNA or am I going too far? Let me let me let me step back just a minute. Sure. Because we arrived in America and America was the first country to really after after all the sacrifices of the revolution. Which, were, which entailed everybody. It entailed housewives and kids, and it, it entailed persons' businesses, their property, their everything was at risk, including their lives. So they went through all this great sacrifice, arriving at victory, having 13 states, new states, wondering how they were gonna govern themselves. And how do you hold off the French? How do we hold off the British from attacking us again? How do we keep Spain from inheriting everything west of the Alleghenies to the Mississippi, right? How do we retain Florida? So these things are big questions on the minds of the colonists of the time who were now new citizens of a new country. And so 50, 55 representatives of 12 colony, new states, because Rhode Island abstained, got together and took all the history we've just talked about. What was best about Athens? What was best about Rome? What was best about England? And fashioned it into our constitution so that we have, in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, localities are supposed to be left alone. Families are supposed to be left alone. Right. Faith is supposed to be left alone. Right? Local government is supposed to be direct democracy. So if you go to your hometown, you have a voice in the, in the town assembly. You have a vote when a vote comes up. You can write your own legislation and present it. Right. That's Athens. And in the jury system, that's Athens. Right. Right. And amended by Britain. At any rate, in our republics, all, we have 50 republics in the states. Right. Each is a republic. And then we have the federal government. 
that is based on the Roman constitution of rep their republic. Right. So right. we have a, at the federal level uh, a constitutional republic. It's not a pure democracy. There's a reason for that. It's a representative uh, government. And then we take from the British, we take uh, the wonderful jurisprudence and common law from the Magna Carta and Britain's uh, example, and also uh, free enterprise, the free enterprises. Right. Um, and from Adam Smith and, and uh, Britain. So these are all wonderful legacies, and they were uniquely formed at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, and, then, and yet there were many who were skeptical and said, this is too central a government. It's too centralized. It's got too much power. So right. several things, several things happened. Patrick Henry held out. He was the governor of Virginia as office as the terms of as often as the terms of office would allow him because they had term limits. <laughs> and he stood up and he said, I, I will not even attend the convention because I know what you're attempting to do. And you're attempting to, to uh, disempower the citizens of Virginia. He, well, uh, John Madison went to him and said, look, we have to agree on this. We have to keep the states together or we're, su we're susceptible to attack from three different empires on every side of us. Right. Patrick Henry said, the only way I will do so is if you base, uh, bring in amendments to the Constitution that are based on the Bill of Rights that Virginians have. And in uh -huh. fact, Virginians had, I think it was called the Declaration of, of Rights. He wanted that put in with some additions to the Constitution as the only way that he would allow Virginia to be a ratifying state of the Constitution. Uh, Madison agreed to that and said, we're not going to do it right away, but after the Constitution is passed, we'll amend it right. with this Bill of Rights. Right. So that was Patrick Henry's uh, objection to it. And there were others about this being too centralized a system. So when it came to when it came to forming the government, there was a central problem. Well, how much how much power should this capital have? How much power should this federal government have? So there was a dinner at Thomas Jefferson's in 1790, and there were two problems. How do we collectivize the debts of all the states, the war debts, into a single responsibility of a central government? Second, what do we do about a capital? If we put a capital in Virginia, Virginia automatically becomes the dominant overpowering state of our new country. If we put it in New York, New York becomes the bed of power and finance. And they wanted those two things separate. They didn't want the money changers and the politicians in one place because that <laughs> corrupts. No, it corrupts. Right. So they, they decided at the dinner that the first thing they would do is circumscribe that capital to being a landless 10 by 10 square miles with no power and no money other than that which the people would give it right meaning the states right because the people paid their taxes to the states then the states paid the federal levy so that was agreed to at that dinner so there was great suspicion of a central power and that was the founding of the country so all the best elements of history put into one document that would govern, you know, like, like gravity governs the patterns of the stars, right? It would be a mode of things not colliding and everything having its own space, powers being distributed and separated and checks and balances between them, between an executive and a legislature right. and a judiciary. 
So how could that go wrong? <laughs> so that's that's this book. You, yeah. That's yeah. Shadows of the Acropolis. Shadows of the Acropolis, yeah. The DNA of democracy ended with the sacrifices made in the Civil War, where uh, where one race of people went to war against itself in an unexampled sacrifice for the freedom of another race, a minority race. Right. That had never happened in history before. Nobody has ever bothered. Right. Um, right. We did at the cost of over a million casualties at a cost of the union of $2 million a day. Yeah, the number of deaths. For four number, years. Yeah, the number of deaths in the Civil War is truly staggering. Staggering. Uh, it, it's just hard to imagine uh, on a modern scale. It would be it would be in the in the in the in the tens of millions of people. Uh, if, if, yeah, if it were a percentage of the population, that's correct. Over yeah. ten million, I think is the yeah, just incredible numbers. sacrifice. If, if Shiloh, if the casualties of Shiloh happened in the numbers of Shiloh today, the whole country would be in revolt. Oh yeah, saying whatever war this is, we can't afford it. Yeah. We should not fight another battle. Yeah. Uh, and then you know it would have been concession to the Confederacy and. But the tremendous sacrifice by the Union and by Abraham Lincoln himself, if he wasn't sent by God, I don't know who did it. He was just the perfect person in the perfect place at the perfect time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and determined to give his life every day of his life uh, for that cause. And for that so matter, that, George Washington was extraordinary, too. And I think you talk about oh, this in your book, that, oh, that it was such a temptation at that time. Uh, to to really he if he was a different sort of personality, I won't compare him to any modern politicians, but let's yeah. say Justin Trudeau. <laughs> if <laughs> we're faced with that kind of temptation to be that powerful, yes. and George Washington said no, he said no, I, I I'm not going to do that because if I if I take the position of essentially of being an elected king, right. I will essentially destroy all of the work that went into the foundation of the. Of the country i mean that type of restraint we just don't seem to have people like that Again, unexampled because it's a rule of power i think Layton, yeah. that if you have power you want more and you never want to right. give up a shadow yeah. so yeah that episode is in the shadows of the the acropolis right after the jefferson dinner yeah and it is it is george washington being asked to preside at a constitutional convention at which he will be disempowered he knows he's going to be asked to be the president and he's been the general of all the armies of, of America. And he's he, the only thing he's going to hear, and he listened all the time. He spoke very little. He listened. And all he heard about was how his office of the executive would be barricaded from having too much power. That it would, he would have to consult the legislature for money. He would have to consult the Senate to have his staff. He would have to consult the judiciary to make sure that what he did was legal. Right. And he sat there and listened to all of it and blessed it. Yeah. So another yeah. remarkable person in the history of the country that uh, was just a remarkable person at a remarkable time. Right. And so now bringing that forward into today, of course, Shadow of the Acropolis talks about, uh, and in the description it says, do you wonder why as a citizen it seems that you are no longer represented? Do you wonder why half the nation is incensed no matter who is the president. Do you wonder why the nation yeah. feels so politically divided? Do you wonder why people in this country are polarized and enmity between each side is on the rise? 
Do you wonder why people in the media speak in many tongues, providing different truths? So why are things so different today? And this is all those things, by the way, are equally true. And in fact, I would say even more so in Canada. I think we're even, I think uh, freedom and liberty are doing much worse here than in the U.S. But really, it's the same problem. It's the same attack of this administrative state, right? So, so how do we, how do, how do we get through this? How do we? What did, what did you learn? Let's go through what happened here. Sure. This is Shadows of the Acropolis, and this is it begins where the DNA of democracy ends up, which is around 1910. Right. Okay. Now, being well read, you know that our form of government, our democratic form of government, is based on John Locke's philosophy of right. the natural rights of the individual. Right. Natural rights. Natural rights to his own person. Natural rights extended to his family. Hmm. Natural rights that he he is owed the fruits of his labor. Na- Those, and, that's and, his, and natural that's because father. because they're God given, right? God given. Yeah. Yeah. So they cannot be, they're inalienable rights. Nobody less than God can dispossess you, meaning a pharaoh can't do it, meaning Isagoras in Greece can't do it, the Tarquins can't do it, King John can't do it, King Henry can't do it. Nobody can do that, right, uh, on this terrestrial plane has right. the power to do that. That's fun, It's a fundamental change in government because it was the king owned everything and he parceled out what he owned to persons worthy which is people who would bend their knees and say we love you and we'll do whatever you tell us that's what i call the common keep of humanity so the john locke philosophy which just preceded the revolutionary era was a fundamental revolution in ideas by itself right and so we we come to where we we just spoke of with George Washington and then Abraham Lincoln. And then we had we had a president in Theodore Roosevelt, who was a child of his era. If you'll remember in history, there was the consolidation of Italy, right? And yeah. there was the consolidation of Germany. They had both been separate countries abounding in principalities that all competed and went to war with each other. Right. And they were never a central power. Mm-hmm. When Italy came together as it did and Germany came together as it did, Teddy Roosevelt was a kid, right? But with dreams of, you know, American empire. And one of the first things he did was assume property lands in all the 31 existing states at the time. He took chunks of land out of every state and made it a federal land. Right. Within the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Which, when you go back to the dinner at Jefferson's, the 10 by 10 square <laughs> square box of land became the biggest landholder in the country overnight and without the consent of Congress. Wow. So that is expanding the executive and expanding the portfolio and the power of the federal government. He also uh, fragmented the railroad industry at the time and, and fragmented the energy industry at the time by taking on the biggest industrialists and going at them with the de- uh, Department of Justice and breaking them up, calling them monopolies and breaking them up. In uh, doing so, it is command. Right. You know, it wasn't voted on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another example. So we go from him to Woodrow Wilson. Now, if you'll remember John Locke based, basing rights on the individual. Woodrow Wilson 
grew up on university campuses his entire life. He never stepped foot outside of a university campus until he assumed the governorship of New Jersey and that mansion and then moved to the presidency. But he wrote a lot of, of works right. in the right. works. In the works, he discussed his admiration and devotion to the philosopher Frederick Hegel. Frederick Hegel is the father of ideal state theory, otherwise known as German state theory. The dialectic that's in Marx. The dialectic which informed the philosophy of Karl Marx, right. which informed the socialism of Italy, the socialism of the Nazi party, the socialism of the Communist Party in Russia. I see. So the individual has to give up his freedom to the state for the state to realize what the state should be. It's a higher life form. Right. Yeah. To which we should give ourselves. Therefore, that life form directs us in what rights we have. Right. Sounds very so un-American, he, though. It's it's opposite. Right. It, Hegel's philosophy and John Locke's philosophy are opposites. They cannot coexist. Sadly for the Democratic Party, this is what they think. They think they can coexist. Anyway, he greatly expanded the executive branch. He denuded this, the states of power by doing two things. He created the central treasury and created the income tax so that all money flowed into one place without states being able to make an objection. The second thing he did was make sure that senators of every state would be elected by their whole population, not by the legislature as it was in the uh, Constitution. Why is that important? Senators were, the Senate office was deliberately invented to do two things, to defend the people of their state and to defend their states in the autonomy of their states. When he made it a, a popular election among all the people of every state, it denuded the defense system of states, the rights of a legislature to elect defenders of their state right? States prerogatives. Uh, so he did those, he did those things and it greatly changed. It inverted the relationship between the states and the federal government. Then the federal co government became the dispensary of all the wealth of the country. It took in all the wealth and then decided who should get it back. Is that why this is so vital to understand our collective history for what's going on yes. In, yes. in the United States and Canada right now, this huge expanding state that's oppressing yes. the individual? But this is, all right, so that basis in Woodrow Wilson is the manner that the birth and the funding of the administrative state began, right? Because right. all this wealth was taken from states, and those states which obeyed the party line got the money back, right? right? So if you're a legislature in Mississippi and you're not doing what Woodrow Wilson wants you to do, if you're the Democratic Party in Mississippi, you're not getting any money back. If you're Ohio and you're not doing what Woodrow Wilson wants you to do, you're not getting your money back. Right. See, it's a central dispensary. It's the ultimate fulcrum. You must do the will of the federal government or the federal government will not give you your money back. So that, so FDR, uh, Franklin Delano was, was, a, was a secretary of the Navy under Wilson and a great uh, advocate of the administrative state of right. Frederick Hegel's philosophy and all Woodrow Wilson's uh, theories and ideals of this administrative state. He took all the money of the country and expanded uh, the executive branch by putting the administrative state into the exec executive branch and by invading the economy. 
by making the government the senior partner of every business in America. If the government didn't like what you were doing, they could stop it. That that sounds like what's happening today. Yes. So this is all it's an organic growth. Do you do you think that that we're on the we're on the verge right now of say maybe another type of rebellion where we're sort of at the end of this period of tyranny, or we still got a way we still have a way to go in this period of tyranny before we get on to something else? What's your what's your view on that in terms of the contemporary situation in the West? Well, let me well we're in a dangerous spot. Uh, let me finish with this this organic growth. So there okay. was Wilson, FDR, and then LBJ, who took away the whole idea of self-reliance and created a dependency industry right. in the federal right. government. Right. So FDR taught <laughs> LBJ how to fund his own constituencies, how to make people dependent on the redistributed wealth of the federal government, or specifically the Democratic Party. Right. right. If you don't do our will, the party line, you're not going to get the money. If dependents in America try and take try and take a dime away from a dependent in America, try and even mention, try and talk about reducing the budget. There is a scream and a holler from half the country to start with. Right. So we're in a dangerous place now. Um, and now. Um, when you look at the administrative state today and you consider what happened with the Clinton family and how they were protected by the Democratic Party, all the federal agencies and the media, right? They could commit wrongdoing and get away with anything, apparently. Right. When they left right. office, they, they accumulated a billion and a half dollars. What was that for? <laughs> That's for influence peddling. Right. Um, so we're in a very precarious place where there is a common defense system between one party of government, its agencies that it created, and the media that thinks they're cool. Right. And we've got we've also still have this Egelian dialectic, though, too, don't we? Yeah. It seems to me, and I want to get your take on this, it seems to me now that instead of it being setting uh, uh, classes against each other, it all seems to be about race. Right. Yeah. It seems to be well, the that's, dialectic. It's a, it's um, well, not to mention that the, the great society invented for redistribution, redistribution of wealth by LBJ that promised us utopia has right. now cost 23, $23 trillion right. of, of money going from producers redistributed through government to dependents. Mm -hmm. right? It's a massive amount of wealth. And in answer to that, just a couple of years ago, they burned down 200 cities. Wow. Because people people who are dependent are so unhappy being dependent. Right. They always think utopia is around the next corner. History doesn't matter. The fact that no socialist government has ever succeeded in history doesn't matter. Yeah. There's a utopia there. Yeah. And we're going to get there. We just have to be able to take enough money right. from other people. And we decide what to do with their earned money. I often think, Richard, it's a shame that the people who are trying to create utopia never actually read what Thomas More wrote. Because as I recall, <laughs> he said that it wasn't achievable on this side of heaven. <laughs> I got news. It isn't. <laughs> no, there's always, they, they base it on an Eden that never was and a utopia that never will be. That's The constitution of our country is based on common sense and practical the practical nature of man. 
having disagreements, having disagreements, and being able to being able to talk about them and arrive at a compromise that's beneficial for everybody. But now we can't, right? We're shutting down those those conversations, aren't we? Well, let me let me say what we're facing. Bring it back to King John. Right. The Plantagenets ruled by what they called will and force. Right. It was their will to enforce their will. Now take an administrative agency. They create rules without anybody making a vote. They create a rule. Let's say it's the EPA. They put they find a guy in Wyoming for for digging out a trench in his own property. They find him $35,000 a day because they didn't approve. So it's their will that he not even dig a trench for his chickens in Wyoming. And their force was that was their will. Their force was $35,000 a day as long as that trench was there. That's a real story. But oh. that is going back to the tyranny of King John as though the Magna Carta never had a voice. Right. So that is where we are. You have an administrative state that is taking in all this money, all of our wealth, and using it to oppress us through its ministerial agency. So understanding the problem and understanding the DNA of democracy, which obviously is still encoded, right? It's still there. It hasn't gone away. That's my hope. My hope, Leighton, is that people look at it and say, my gosh, these are these are fundamental to how we should be governed. Right. And yet it's being taken away through this administrative state. It's that it's that you have two opposite kinds of government existing in the same space. You have the representative government. And you have the administrative government. And they are opposites. They are utter opposites. Mm-hmm. So they, they can't coexist. One is going to be dominant. To the, to Up till 15, 20 years ago, the representative government was dominant. Now I think the administrative state is dominant. Right. And they're not the creature of the Democratic Party anymore. The Democratic Party is the creature of the administrative state. And it's socialism. And so we, we're, we're at a point now where and it seems to have been part of this DNA of democracy is that things have to reach a point where people just say no more. And even at that point, taking the American example, uh, not everyone agreed with revolution. Uh, if you think of the United Empire, 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 sure. The United Empire loyalists, they, you know, they, they stayed with Britain. So, but are we at a point now where, where you think people are, are, are fed up? Uh, that we're certainly getting that sense on uh, in in Canada. Um, Mr. Biden is is uh, is incredibly unpopular. Uh, Mr. Trump seems to be on the rise. Is that indicative of of a change where people are are maybe getting a sense of okay, we've got to get back. We have to restore uh, a sense of who we are and who we have been because the way well, we're living right now is miserable. Yeah, well, you know, there's. There have been instances lately that confirm everything I found that a tyranny is gathering. And Donald Trump, he is branch. He's insulting. He's rude. He's all these things. He's also the biggest threat to the administrative state that they've seen since Ronald Reagan. Right. And rather than have somebody like him change one rule, one of their will or their capacity to use force, they'd rather uh, create this Russian collusion scheme between their agencies for three years and then impeach him and then persecute him and all of his friends and his family. 
That is how dangerous he is. But here's the problem. The Democratic Party, as much as it is involved and dedicated to destroying the country and creating socialism, it is unified. The Republican Party tends to destroy itself right. before it can govern. It's right. always a split party. They're always half in the bag with the Democrats. Instead of having a party, and this is, I just wrote this letter to a number of different politicians, media people. You have to decide what the Republican Party is. I think the Republican Party ought to go back to its legacy of freeing the country, right? And make that its destiny. Make that its destiny. Right. How do you do that? Because it, it started as an abolitionist party, right? Yes, exactly. It started it started to free the slaves in America. Yeah. That's how that started. That's how you never know began. that from listening to Democrats today, though. <laughs> the Democrats are the worst thing that ever happened to the African American in history. Yeah. The worst thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. Anyway, so you have you have one party dedicated to the country's destruction and another party dedicated to the destruction of itself, when we should have a party dedicated to the Constitution and yes. Commonwealth and yes. free enterprise right. and just state those policies blatantly, argue for them, demonstrate like the DNA of democracy, the benefits of these things, the benefits of freedom of faith, of free enterprise, of free elections, uh, this has to be, and, and getting rid of this administrative state or decreasing it to such a size as it's controlled. Right. Well, I think uh, what you've said and what you've written um, is so very true. And uh, and, and I think it's, uh, it's very instructive. It's almost like an instruction manual. They, and the best part about it is we don't have to reinvent this, do we? I mean, no. we, have, we, we have the knowledge, we have the technology. Uh, we have an understanding of, of who we are. It just takes a decision about what type of society we're going we're going to be going forward in the West. Yeah, the, somebody posed that question to me lately, and I, you know, I've been so buried in the work of getting this out. You know, what's the next what's the next step? It's not revolution because that's bloody. It's not uh, reformation because that normally ends up in a dictatorship. It's renewal. Yeah. Renewal yeah. of faith, renewal of faith in the Constitution. Yeah. That's why you're seeing all this critical race theory that blames the Constitution for slavery. Right. That's yeah. why you're seeing all this. Yeah. Now that we owe the we owe a race, socialism. Yeah. So we should all be enslaved. Oh. It makes it, it, that's their argument. I, I agree. Uh, renewal is a great word. I, I I often use the word rehabilitate. Which means to restore again. Oh, to they, they are drunk on power. I yeah, say that. yeah, and yeah. <laughs> but uh, okay, so this has been a wonderful conversation. We covered a lot of ground. I'm glad we did. Yeah. I want to talk yeah. a little bit about. Uh, I warned you that there was a reading list here at the end. Uh, okay. I'm going to ask you to give us a close. Uh, give us a closing selection or two. But I sure. want to. Uh, I want to talk about your books, of course, DNA of Democracy. Uh, here, where you take a look through a series of essays, uh, the discovery and celebration concerning the rare, the life-giving, and the fragile quality of American democracy. That's beautiful. Uh, and then, of course, Shadows of the Acropolis that we talked about, which is sort of the the next, bringing that into the next uh, phase, the next era. But one book we didn't talk about that I really want to mention, and I highly recommend to people, 
but it's different than your other books. It's called But by the Chance of War. And uh, I have I have not read this book, but I listened to the audio version. It was just wonderful, beautifully written. And uh, this book, in this book, Richard uh, brings his creative talents to an exploration of some of the most vexing and profound questions about war in this imaginative series of epic poems. But by the chance of war is reminiscent of the great Greek and Roman works. Each of the four parts ranges in setting from ancient India to colonial America, to battlefields of modern Europe, and to a conjectured scene in the contemporary Middle East. So this was a beautiful book to listen to, and you're on it. Obviously, you're there as part of the narration, which was fun. Um, what what was your inspiration? What was your muse for creating that book, Richard? Well, that was that goes back a long way, and uh, I, I just had a germ of uh, a germ of an idea when I was a kid, when I was uh, 20 years old, and that idea was amorphous and it was. I didn't know how to tackle it. I didn't even know how to begin. But over time, I dedicated myself on weekends to, wait a minute, I need to, first I need to learn how to write. First, I need to learn how to, uh, I need to learn the composition of what I'm, what is the body of what I'm trying to write? How am I going to get the message across? And it, what the message is, is about the evolution of the inventions of man for, in his capacity to commit war against each other. Right. But at the same time, human evolution spiritually has not kept up. So that the means of war are, are gathering strength while our spirituality to be one community has failed so far. Right. So and there's always and, and this is this is true of that book and these other two. And that is the nature of opposites, the nature of human beings to become teams of opposites. Right. And and I use first, you know, in the in the French and Indian Wars, which is in the book, it's the French Empire against the British Empire. Right. In World War One, it's Germany and, and uh it's Germany and Austria against Britain and France. But there's always opposites and they're always roughly equals and they're always going to war with each other. So the corollary of that today is China now with Russia and with Iran comprising one entity. And the uh, and hopefully the Western democracies, so-called democracies, forming right. another forming another coalition which is uh, strong and united. Yeah, we just can't seem to do without this polarization, can we? Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe a girl was right. You know, just, it's, yeah. it's in human nature, and I go into that in the book. That it's just a part of our being. That if you take a stand there, I'm going to stay take a stand here, and we're going to be. Yeah. Opposite. Yeah. Yin and yang, right? Yin and yang. Exactly. Anyway, so, I, I really, really enjoyed that book. It's beautifully written. All your books are beautifully written, but that one, uh, but it, I, I love poetry and uh, I love yeah. epic poems. I'm a great fan of Milton. Uh, and, oh, uh, yeah. So, so I love uh, anything with an epic poem. I, you, you've got me at hello. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, besides your own work, um, yeah. Are there any uh, books or, or things of that nature that you would recommend to people uh, perhaps deepen their understanding of some of the topics that we've talked about today? Well, there, there's a book that I read recently that it goes right to your profession, and it's called The Dirty Dozen. And and this is, when I do the second edition of this, this is going to occupy a chapter right at the end. 
right? And it's going to talk about how the Supreme Court, being the the uh, defensive system set up for the by the founders to defend the Constitution, has actually opened avenues for the federal government to assume all the power it wants through the welfare clause, the commerce clause. Uh, it's called the Dirty Dozen, and it is a dozen cases that where the Supreme Court went along with. Well, this is what it, we think it should be, right? <laughs> right. Instead of strictly reading the Constitution, they invented reasons to ignore the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a great book. Yeah, legal uh, philosophers call that school like legal realism, where the judge ceases to see themselves as that as an interpreter of law, and begins to assume the role of a legislator. Yes. Right. Or, uh, uh, which is really not, I don't think, what the framers of the Constitution en envisaged. But we definitely are in an era of judicial activism. That's true in both the United States and Canada right now. I think the Dobbs decision was a great example of that in your country. The, yeah. the, that is the, the reversal of Roe versus Wade really came down to a change in the philosophical underpinnings of who was sitting on the bench. Uh, and that's that's really uh, that's really not good. Uh, that's not that's not a good thing for the administration of justice. Well, that law that law was properly left to the legislatures of the states for persons to vote on for persons to vote. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was something that the judicial branch took away and then gave back. But right. their proper role. And here's the tragedy of everything we talked about today, going into shadows of the Acropolis. Every member of the federal government, when they assume office, takes an oath, and that oath is to the Constitution. And the Supreme Court justices take an oath to defend the Constitution. Right. And what's happened for the last hundred years is that they've slashed and ripped the Constitution to shreds. And one party of government is gleeful about it. They can't wait to finish it off right. and right. to bury it. So that is where at a critical lie in the road either going to go renew ourselves into a constitutional republic or let this socialism take hold. Well, I certainly pray, and I know you do, that uh, you're right, that there's something in the code of democracy that is uh, immutable, inscrutable, and indestructible. And yeah. uh, But in any case, we've certainly learned a lot more about it uh, today, and people can learn even more by reading your books, which all of which I highly recommend. Richard, this has been just a, a real thrill to talk with you after reading your books. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. I hope you keep writing. I wish you much continued success. And thank you so much for being our special guest today on Gray Matter. Well, it was a joy, Lynn. Great joy. Always good to meet a, a fellow English lit guy. <laughs> well, Thanks. great to see you. Thank you, sir. Happy to come back anytime. All right. Take care.